0: Violent Prayer Engaging Your Emotions Against Evil Press Tigre Chapter 3 Lord, if it's your will, maybe. Undecisiveness and persistence. The situation at work was tense. Though it was years ago, I can still feel the anxiety if I think long enough about it. A conflict had risen among staff members, and while each was intent on doing the right thing and maintaining the right attitude, no one trusted the others to have the same intentions. Anger, fear, suspicion, guilt, and shame crept in. Sometimes. The symptoms were subtle, sometimes not. Several of us prayed. I found myself in my office one day, almost paralyzed in my prayers, feeling a sense of futility and hopelessness about the situation. I told God I didn't know what He was doing in the problem, and I prayed that he would resolve it. That's a decent prayer, and it's, all about, and it's about all I could muster. But as I prayed, I realized I was giving the anger, fear, suspicion, guilt, and shame too much leeway. I was actually asking God to heal us of these things, If this was his will. Awakened to attack. If it's his will, of course it's his will. God isn't the author of these things. Yes, he inspires holy anger sometimes, but that's not what was growing among us. And yes, there's an appropriate place for guilt if it leads to repentance. But repentance had already happened here. But fear? Suspicion? Shame? Where in the Bible does God desire such feelings? I thought through the list of negative attitudes that were so insidiously infecting the conflict. And I realized they all came from Satan. True sinful flesh cultivates those characteristics as well, but usually the enemy presides over them. And the way these were spreading, well, it seemed to me they had dimensions beyond what was natural. Something was going on here that clearly was not God's will. I felt a deep anger welling up within me, Not a misplaced anger at anyone in the situation, but an anger at whatever spiritual instigators were behind it. And I began to pray. I not only began to pray, I began to pray violently, passionately, aggressively. I wanted the instigator to hear what I was asking, and I wanted to punctuate my Godward conversation with some choice Satan word comments. I reminded everyone within Ayrshire, me, God, and whoever else was listening in from the spirit world, of the authority Jesus held by his very nature and by his victory on the cross, and which he imparted to his followers. I spoke harshly about the illegitimate intrusion of Satan's schemes into our lives. I was fighting mad, and if I had an inkwell at my disposal, disposal as Luther had, I'd have thrown it at the devil too. Within two days, one of the parties involved made a conciliatory gesture that was received well by another party involved. In less than a week, all these negative feelings were a bad memory. Was there a connection? Again, I can't say for sure. All I can say is that if you experience enough coincidences, they cease to be coincidences. Knowing God's will. Deep down, we often know when something is God's will. We don't want to be presumptuous though, so we put a caveat at the end of all our prayers. If it's your will, Lord, this little disclaimer can come from a humble spirit that's genuinely seeking God's sovereign will, and in that sense, it's never inappropriate. But it also can add a tentative nature to our prayers almost crippling us emotionally and reminding us to resign ourselves to fate or whatever we think is inevitable in our lives. It's a way of saying, so I won't be embarrassed, just in case you don't answer, Lord. In other words, we often use these words to put put down our weapons. There's no need to do that. Jesus didn't tell his disciples to pray according to his will and then neglect to let them know what it was. We have lots of evidence in Scripture about God's will, and we can pray it with confidence. We may not know exactly how he'll work out circumstances, but we know to a large degree what's consistent with his character. We know, for example, that God isn't into deception, anxiety, mistrust, fear of people or things, sinful desires, burdens of shame, injustice, discontentment, selfishness, or anything else that profanes his people or his own reputation. And we know, on the other hand, that he's definitely in favor of love, joy, missions, justice, patience, forgiveness, generosity, and a whole host of other things that match his attributes. We have free reign to pray for the things that are consistent with his character and against the things that are not. That's always His will. Think of all the other aspects of His will we can know with certainty. Jesus told us that the devil came to kill, steal, and destroy, but that Jesus Himself came to give us abundant life. Is there any reason not to pray against the enemy's theft and destruction and for abundant life? Jesus also told us Satan is the father of lies. Is there any reason not to pray against deception, especially in light of Paul's statement that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving? Jesus instructed us to pray specifically that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers. Is there any reason to add if it's your will, Lord, to the end of that? This puts a whole new spin on 1 John 5, verse 14, which tells us, If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Our mental paraphrase of that verse is often something along these lines. If what we pray happens to overlap at some point, with his will, then he'll answer, otherwise he won't. But on the many occasions when we know God's will with certainty, maybe our paraphrase of this f- verse verse should look something like this: Now that you know what God's will is, ask it. If you request what you know to be on God's heart, you can be sure he'll answer. There's a substantial difference between those two approaches. One is ignorant of, of or indifferent to God's will. Treating the relationship is a guessing game. The other interprets God's revelation of his heart as marching orders. This doesn't mean we always know what God is doing. We can't say God will never let us suffer hardship. That's clear from scripture. We live in a fallen world and we're frequently either victims of or participants in the fallenness. Many times, negative events and attitudes are part of the process. They form the context in which we can be visible representatives of the character of God. If life always went smoothly, few people would be able to tell the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Worse than that, few people would be anything of God's mercy, holiness, and power. Those attributes generally show up only in the context of adversity. Sometimes God lets us suffer for exactly that reason, and to pray against hardship would be to pray contrary to His will. But we can see aspects of those hardships that violate His character, and that's fair game. There's nothing in the Bible's teaching to discourage us from praying against those things. And praying aggressively. With that said, please don't interpret this as a formula. We can't say that violent aggressive prayers against all that's contrary to His will constitute a foolproof technique. We don't have God in a box in this kind of prayer or any other. He won't be pinned down. I've had aggressive, faith-filled prayers go mysteriously unanswered almost as often as I've seen miraculous results. I don't know why God responds in some situations and not in others. I do know, however, that He commands us to pray zealously and to pray consistently with who He is. Sometimes, a militant, passionate prayer is exactly consistent with who he is. There's a valid approach, not a formula. It helps to understand that while we may not always understand God's exact will in terms of specific circumstances, we usually do know it in terms of character and attitude. And we can see when ungodliness infects our lives and circumstances in these areas. We don't have to ask God if sin is His will, or if it's His will for circumstances to ruin the ministry that we or our churches are called to. We can legitimately ask Him if hardship and sacrifice are His will, but we know that devastation isn't. Both God and His Word authorizes us to pray and act decisively against evil in the world. What Tentiveness Does Not being decisive about what fits with God's character and what doesn't can cause us to be tentative in our prayers. Being tentative, in turn, has at least two negative results. One is that we find it hard to exercise faith when we pray. We ask with uncertainty, undermining whatever confidence we might have had that God hears us favorably. Faith is we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for. And Jesus told his disciples repeatedly that faith was integral to prayer. If we don't have it, we aren't really praying. For the sake of balance, it's important to remember that our faith is in God in His willingness and ability to answer, not in the specifics of what we're asking. We can petition Him in confidence, even when we don't know exactly what we're petitioning Him for. But there does seem to be in Scripture an element of understanding the specific will of God when we pray if we're putting disclaimers on the end of our prayers because we don't want to go to the trouble it takes to wait and hear God's voice on an issue while undermining the relationship and praying with a lack of faith. Another result of tentative prayer praying is that we won't per- persevere if we aren't sure We're asking according to God's will. We'll assume that any debt, any delay in the answer is a negative answer. If God hasn't granted our request in a short period of time, we conclude He never will because we we weren't on target with our prayer. If we have no assurance that our prayers are at least consistent with his character, we can't wrestle with any endurance at all. We won't fulfill Jesus' instructions to persist in our petitions. In short, if we don't have faith and patience in our prayers, we can't pray aggressively for God's kingdom to come. George Mueller was an example of both faith and endurance. Mueller was a voluntarily poor German who moved to Bristol, England in the 1800s to start orphanages. His journal accounts of asking God for exorbitant sums in order to fulfill his ministry to orphans is a fascinating read for those who need encouragement and faith. Certain of God's promises, Mueller never lacked anything he needed to buy a desired piece of property or to pay a bill for the orphanage. The money always came in unexpected ways and always just in time. Mueller was certain his requests were consistent with God's plan. He often had no idea how God would fulfill them. Toward the end of his life, Mueller told of another sort of prayer his petitions for those who didn't know salvation in Christ. He was able to say that not a single person he'd prayed for, out of hundreds, had ever died without having accepted Jesus by faith. Some cases were still pending, but none had been lost. And many of those who came to Christ did so only after Mueller had been praying for them aggressively and daily for decades. We rarely do that. I can't count the number of petitions I've given up on after a few days. We know how to pray intensely for a few days, or to pray occasionally and casually for decades but intensely for decades, that doesn't fit our expectations. We assume that if it takes that long to get an answer, it must not have been God's will. Where did we go wrong? How do we get the idea that prayer is not a long-term strenuous endeavor? Not from the Bible. We have plenty of examples of patient praying in Scripture. Abraham praying for a child. Israel praying for deliverance from Egypt. Hannah praying for a child. David praying for his kingdom and for the privilege of building a temple, and many more. One of the most dramatic biblical examples of enduring prayer is when Daniel prayed and fasted for three weeks, and an angel or a vision of Jesus came at the end of that time and told Daniel, essentially, I'd have been here sooner, but we were being opposed in a spiritual battle. The prince of Persia was resisting me until Michael came out to help, came to help out. We wonder what might have happened if Daniel had prayed for a couple of days and quit because no answer had came. What if he'd said at the end of his prayer about ending Judas' captivity, Lord, if it's your will, would he have been motivated to endure for 21 days in the same prayer? There would have been nothing wrong with Daniel blindly deferring to God's will. That's a humble thing to do. But Daniel couldn't do that because he was aware of the Lord's will regarding the captivity. And it it had been prophesied in Jeremiah and Daniel knew it. He had no need to be tentative in his prayer or to give up in a matter of days. You can't go wrong praying for something God has prophesied and promised to do. If we, like Daniel, can be confident of many aspects of God's will, what's stopping us from praying specifically for it just as persistently? Years before Daniel, Isaiah prophesied about the coming kingdom of God. In chapter 62 of his prophecy, God makes a curious statement. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves, and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Why is an omniscient God asking for repeated reminders? Is it because he's forgetful? From the rest of scripture, we know that's ludicrous. There must be something God wants in our persistence, some reason for us to persevere in our asking. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus urged his disciples to pray with persistence. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Not and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. The verbs in these verses are better translated. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. There's an implied perseverance in them that the first readers of the Gospels would have picked up immediately. They don't describe a brief transaction or contain any hint of instant gratification. They indicate a wrestling of the soul that takes hold of what God promises and won't let go. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus told an intriguing parable, one we've referred to before, about a man going to his friend at midnight and asking for three loaves of bread. It struck us as an odd case study in prayer. Midnight is an unreasonable hour to knock on a neighbor's door, and that's an unreasonable amount of bread to ask for. No disciple listening to this parable would think the man with bread was obligated to get out of bed and give some to the man without. But he does get up, and there's only one reason. The neighbor is very persistent. That's prayer, Jesus says. Yes, it's brash and bold, and bordering on root and we know our Heavenly Father is never asleep and reluctant to get up for us. So what's Jesus' point? Just this. Prayer is often a matter of intense and unreasonable perseverance. An even more unlikely parable is the one in Luke 18, about a widow pestering an unrighteous judge until he grants her legal protection from an opponent. The judge doesn't fear God and he resists her entreaties, but he finally answers her request. Why? Only because she won't stop bothering him. There's a picture of prayer too, Jesus says. He follows his parable, with an urge for God's people to continue to cry out day and night to the righteous judge for justice and to cry out in faith. They can do that because they know justice is integral to God's character. There's no reason to wonder whether their prayers are consistent with His will. The two things this parable means to encourage Are the two things that aggressive prayer for God's kingdom purposes cannot do without faith and persistence? As if his parables weren't enough, Jesus' ministry bears out the need for persevering prayer. It's true that he often hailed someone at first request, but usually those who came to him fought crowds, and went to great hardship to get near him. One man was let down through a roof by his friends so Jesus would see him. A blind man sat by the road crying out to Jesus with a loud voice for his healing touch. A Jewish official and a Roman centurion Went to considerable distance to beg a miracle for members of their households. A hemorrhaging woman fought crowds and humiliation in order to touch the hem of his garment. Hungry multitudes came out into the fields where there was no food in order to hear him preach and ask him to intervene in their lives. Few people casually approached him with a request and immediately walked away with an answer. One striking example is a Gentile woman who encountered Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. She pleaded with him to come cast a cruel demon out of her daughter, and the compassionate Son of God ignored her. Did he really have such distaste for Gentiles? To her, it didn't matter. She persisted. She persisted so much, in fact, that the disciples begged Jesus to send her away. She repeatedly, she shouted repeatedly at him for his help. So Jesus reminded her that he was the Jewish Messiah and that Gentiles were outside his ministry at the moment. But that didn't stop her. In great humility, she didn't get defensive when Jesus reminded her that Jews think of Gentiles as dogs. She still knew he could help. Only then did the seemingly reluctant Messiah reverse his stance. He applauded her great faith, which was most evident in one endearing characteristic. She wouldn't stop asking. Why today's church Forgot. Somehow the church forgot that prayer is a long term project, and it wasn't that long ago that we lost sight of it. Church history is full of patient petitions. In the early centuries after the New Testament, the Desert Fathers would spend extraordinarily long hours in prayer some in quite uncomfortable positions. Medieval monks would isolate themselves for days and even weeks in order to pursue an intense kind of prayer with the Father. Martin Luther, Charles Wesley, and and numerous other great saints used to pray for four or five hours each morning Because they just didn't see how they could get through the day without that much communication with God. Less than a century ago, South African pastor Andrew Murray could still write a book called Waiting on God. What happened to shorten our attention span? As noted earlier, society has changed and taken us with it. We developed time-saving devices like microwaves and computers. We invented drive-through windows and convenient ATMs. Our long-distance communication went from slow slow surface mail to instant email. We can get from one coast to the other in a few hours, or to another hemisphere in just a few more. Our lunches come in plastic containers so we can open them, eat them, trash the packaging, and be done. We've adapted to sound bites as our primary source of news. Any traffic light that lasts longer than 45 seconds feels excruciatingly slow. We don't even like to wait 10 seconds for a web page to come up on our screen. We're not trained for patience. That's a problem when it comes to prayer. Sometimes our prayers are to be like a blitzkrieg. More often, they're to be like the Normandy invasion, the first step in a long and thorough campaign. If we don't follow them through to the end, they don't win the war. When Paul was thinking of metaphors for the spiritual conflict, he chose wrestling, Greek style. The word wrestle, In Ephesians chapter six and verse twelve, is translated as struggle or battle in some versions. That kind of wrestling match is a feat of endurance, requiring constant exertion, and physical energy and mental maneuvering. Only the highly conditioned can compete. Paul's metaphor implies that if we can't persevere, we can't pray biblically. As we've seen, knowing that we're praying in the will of God is a key to persevering. The disclaimers in our prayer talk undermine faith and longevity. They cause us to tiptoe into battle, which dooms us to an early exit. Tentative. Wrestlers don't win any matches. We don't need to know all the specifics of how we expect God to answer or be able to predict His will with certainty. We do, however, need to stop apologizing to Him for praying something entirely consistent with His revealed will and character. Battle is written into our sight by the God who made us and written into his word as part and parcel of the kingdom agenda. Instead, we ask him if maybe it might be his will to confront a certain evil. Yes, it's his will already. God spoke through Isaiah, beseeching his people to ask him repeatedly, to fulfill the promises he clearly given. Daniel read in the prophets what God's will was, so he didn't give up his prayer. Jesus told his followers to cry out day and night because justice is God's will. When we're aware of God's plan and familiar with his attributes, We can recognize when the enemy is exploiting a situation. We can pray violently and passionately because we're confident of God's overall agenda. And we can pray without ever giving up. And what that says to me, it brought back to my memory a story that Brother Harrington told me in church one day which was, before he came to God, it took him and his family praying four years before he finally got in the church. And the reason it took so long was because God had to work in the situation that he was in. But that right there, it took four years of praying. Four years is a long time, like it was saying. But, in the end, Brother Harrington has been serving the Lord now for 45 years. So, with that being said, I understand exactly what the book is saying and that you sometimes have to pray for a long time. Love you.